Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Christine Chu, an author, shoemaker, and more importantly, health advocate for her son who was born with a rare medical condition. With grace and a profound connection to her idea of faith, she shares how she faces the daily challenges of mothering a sick child and how these experiences have not broken her connection to herself, her child, and more importantly, her connection to something greater than herself. Please welcome Christine Chu. Welcome, Christine. So I start the show off by asking only one question, and the question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have reshaped the direction of your own life? There have been many events in my life that have been kind of life-changing, but the one that I'd love to talk about today is I'm a mother and I have two boys. My younger son was born with a syndrome called Vactoral. And what's really interesting about the whole experience was that it really changed the way I looked at life and how perception, how you perceive life matters and, and that that is really in your control. Can you go back and explain to us whatever it the is? Syndrome? That has? Yeah, what is the syndrome? Can you so, explain it to us? Sure. It's a very rare syndrome. It's called factorial, V-A-C-T-E-R-L. It's pretty rare and it stands for vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheal, esophageal, and limbs. My son had all of those except for limbs. That was not impacted. And there's a range. It can be short. It could be um, minor. And it can be major. So sometimes you, know, you can't even tell if someone has factoral. And at other times, you know, you can tell from, you know, their medical and or physical appearance. So how severe was your son's diagnosis and symptoms? Like I said, every system was impacted in there except for limbs. If you look at my son, you would never guess he looks like any other kid, but he has a lot of medical issues and he's just such a trooper. And how old is he now? He's 10 and he goes to school. He is just really a happy kid. And how old is your other son? My other son is 18 and I just dropped him off at college. I just returned yesterday. Do you think that there are other contributing factors into why your second child ended up with this diagnosis and obviously um, illness? They don't actually know that much about factorial. It just happens. It's probably a number of things, but it's not a hereditary, and they really are not able to say what causes it. And so do you find yourself like he's in and out of hospital quite a lot or is able to maintain a fairly normal, you know, 10-year-old life? Well, so he's been through eight surgeries. Most of them were before he was maybe two or three. I guess you would say 
The situation with him is if something goes wrong, it, it can have a domino effect, a lot like a syndrome. Uh, so when he's well, he's very well. But, you know, recently he needed a few vaccinations and he got that three in one day, which is normal for most kids. But he ended up spiking a, a fever and was sick for a week, full week. And his um, appetite didn't recover. And in the third week, he starts like another fever and this would keep happening. And we finally realized he had an infection. So maybe it was related, maybe it wasn't related, but that's kind of how things go. But when he's well, he's, he's well, but a trigger can set something off. So you've been living with this for 10 years. I mean, I can't even imagine when you first got that diagnosis, he was a, a baby, I'm assuming. He was born with it and they, for some reason, didn't pick up on it. And I think this is one of those moments when I look back and for all the, you know, all the other mothers who are going to hear this, I think it's so important that when you feel like something's not right, you may not have the actual proof that something's not right, but you should follow up on it. And if your doctor doesn't listen, you should find someone else who might listen. Interesting. So... I would love to talk about how this has impacted your son's development, but going back to you as a mother, I mean, the sense of hopelessness and helplessness that you must feel at times must be immense. How do you cope with that? When um, he was in the NICU, he had like tubes and he was connected to all this machinery and it was just horrifying and I couldn't stop crying. I think one of the questions that came up for me, which probably comes up for most parents in this situation is why me? Why us? Why my baby? I just obsessed over this question. I just continued to do research. And one day I was uh, with him and I was holding him. He was in the NICU. I would rest my forearm against his body and my hand against his head. I asked this again and again. And finally, I had this memory. I don't know why I had this memory of when I was a child. I grew up in the suburbs of New York, and we were the first Chinese-American family on the block. I had a lot of issues. I got bullied a lot for being Chinese. And one day I got beat up walking home from school. My parents weren't home because uh, they actually, they both worked. And I was so terrified that I told my mother that night that I didn't want to go to school anymore. And my mother was literally just overwhelmed by life. You know, she's an immigrant. We're living in a community that, you know, we're obviously not like everyone else. She got really put off. She said to me, you know, how can you say that after everything that we have given up for you to go to this school? And it made me feel really lonely. I felt like no one really understood what was going on. And I couldn't actually tell them what happened because I was really ashamed. So that night I was crying and I, I, I used to, you know, pray to God. I, I don't do that anymore, but I was on my knees and I was praying. You start to barter with God, right? Yes. And, and, and I'm Especially like, when you're on your knees. Yeah. And I'm like, um, look, you know, if you make this stop, I promise you one day, give me children who no one 
or no one understands and I will, I'll take care of them and I'll heal them. Oh, wow. So this memory comes back to me. It was like being on one side of a coin and flipping to the other side. And suddenly I was like, I made this choice. I wanted this. And it's such a different way of looking at it. It's like feeling helpless one moment and then feeling like you're in charge the next. And I realized these kids came to me for a reason. And I'm the person who can help them. And I did. And I do. So let's go back to, you made a reference to the fact that you no longer pray to God. I know that when people are facing incredibly challenging moments in life, and we do find ourselves, some of us do find ourselves on our knees, it can either strengthen your belief or you can turn the other way. And that question of how can a God who's loving do something so awful, right? So do you feel that in a way sort of tested your own faith in a belief in something higher than yourself? I would say that it strengthened it. I consider myself a really spiritual person, but I think my concept of God has morphed radically uh, ever since I was a child. I think when I was a child, my idea of God was some man sitting in a chair (laughs) on a cloud, you know? My idea of God now is so much more mathematical. My sense is, is that we are so limited in the few senses that we have that for us to be able to comprehend God is just out of our realm of understanding. So can you go back to why or how it's mathematical? Because to me, that's a very linear, although, I mean, I suppose people who are mathematicians will say how creative math is, right? Yeah. But can you explain to us perhaps the, you know, the the laymen who are not mathematically so inclined, why you would draw that kind of analysis or comparison? I think it's because When we think of God, you know, we expect him to look like us, Uh, you know, because I guess in the Bible it says we, you know, we share the same, we look the same. But I don't, I think that's very, a very literal translation of what God is. I think that we all have God, right? We all have these moments. And if we were more connected to these kinds of moments, God would be in our life all the time. We don't have that. We're, you know, we have our earthly issues, money, food, you know, children. And I think that major religions actually stumble upon ways to actually be in that kind of zone or that frequency, I guess some people call it. But I don't think that it's, it's something that just anyone who doesn't practice, you know, whatever it is can get there. I mean, I think the closest for me is meditation. So I meditate every day and or try to. And while I I don't meditate on any prayer or anything, I do feel like it it takes me into a very different feeling. It's almost a transcendent feeling where you are for that moment outside of time and space and like earthly kind of concerns, like the bills and all that stuff. and, And you get that little escape. And I think it's that little escape that that is really powerful. And is that what sustains you or has sustained you during these 10 years, which I can only imagine has been harrowing at times? Yes. So I'm one of these people who, you know, time and dates and things like that, I don't really have a great grasp of it. 
Oh, me too. Yeah, it just it's it's just outside of my ideas of creation, I guess, because I'm very creative. But when it comes to time and days, I I just lose track. And I think creative people tend to be that way because the best. And the most truthful things or moments or whether it be something you create in art or literature or whatever are in those transcendent moments. So people who are very creative tend to be in that. And, and it happens to me when I make shoe, I'm a shoemaker uh, or I make shoes. And when I'm in the mode and when I'm making things, I lose track of time too. So once your son came out of the NICU and you were faced with the reality that this was going to be ongoing and not really knowing what ongoing would look like. How did you persevere in those moments of just A, being terrified of the unknown and B, being terrified for the health and safety of your own child? There have been moments that are really terrifying, uh, especially since my younger son uh, was born in uh, 2011. And there was a lot of chatter about getting rid of Obamacare. One of the things that I realized was I need to be talking about this. I need to be writing about this because people don't realize that you could be fairly well off. But after about the third surgery, when you're paying out of pocket about $10,000 per surgery, you start to wonder, like, are you going to go bankrupt? Right. You know, because you don't know how many more there will be. You don't know if it will last a year, 10 years, 20 years, right? And that becomes your concern. There was no real reason why this should have happened or could have happened. I just wish people understood that, that it can happen to you. It can happen to anyone. And it's so important. Some things are really important. And one of them is healthcare. It's a human right. And so I realized this was all happening during this whole period. And that it was my obligation to start writing about it and talking about communicating and sharing what it's really like. So that's what I started to do. I started working on a memoir about being a mom, dealing with this during this period. And have you finished the memoir? I have not finished it because I had a book come out in 2020 that I had to publicize. I am an author, but I also do a lot of speaking and I create shoes and I just am always trying to learn something new. So how many surgeries has your son had in the 10 years? He's had eight. And you never know if something's going to be serious or something's going to be really huge. He gets monitored at several different hospitals. We just go day by day. And you said that he's attending normal school, right? Yes. He has friends that you know, he loves and he's just a perfect example of someone who goes through a lot and continues to smile and show you so, that life is just not so bad. So I know that sometimes when people have uh, faced severe illness as a child, it creates this incredibly deep empathy in their nature and the way they navigate the world in general. And do you see the, those aspects of his personality taking shape because of his illness? I think that is exactly on the ball. He is one of those people. 
he's very quiet about things and he can be very shy at first, but he is always noticing things. And he's always that kid who notices when someone's being left out. He has this way of bringing light into the room. And I think I'm just lucky to be around him. And then have you been able to prepare him at all for the fact that, you know, this is something he's going to be dealing with for the rest of his life? Well, I tell him that this is the way it is, but medical research is always going forward. And you never know, you know, you never know what will happen. So why not think the best? Why not think people are going to know what factorable is? And there won't be so much, you know, secrecy around the syndrome because I think, you know, it brings up a lot of stuff for people. And I think there's always that chance that things will change in, you know, five, 10 years time. And he's okay. I mean, he kind of takes that in stride, I'm assuming, because he is still so young. I'm assuming at this point, he's not really faced, you know, perhaps looking at the landscape down the road and thinking, oh, I could be 25 and having to go back into the hospital for yet another surgery. Yeah, he doesn't like those, uh, for sure. But because we take it day by day, we try not to focus on it so much. Since I'm his mom, I do focus on it more, but I try to let him be a kid and not think about those things. At a certain point, when he gets older, he will inevitably have to. But for now, I I get to still be his mom and worry about it instead of him. And is there a mortality rate with this? I mean, I don't want to be grim about it, but I think people die from it. I do think that some children don't make it. And part of it, it, it really depends on, you know, how severe, because it can, it affects all these different systems, right? So, and it affects everyone in different ways. Some children have complications when they're in the NICU and don't make it past the NICU. And some kids have issues as they're growing up. 20 years ago, my son, you know, would have found out too late, probably, that he had, um, reflux of the the bladder and that that he would need a kidney transplant. So this is how medicine just changing and moving. It's like, you know, there's always hope. Now there are medical procedures that you can do to to make sure that, you know, he protects his kidneys. And then I've also seen sibling dynamics where one sibling is sick or has some kind of developmental issue and the impact on the on the other sibling. So have you noticed how this has impacted your older son's life since he was eight? So that's a fairly developed age. And to have this be a part of his everyday sort of life for the past 10 years must have shaped him in some way. Oh, yeah. I would say that my older son suffered from um, PTSD or PTSD-like symptoms. And it was really hard for him because he would we would drop him off at school and we would go to the hospital. And then we wouldn't know if how things would, would be or how things went. And and he would be in class and he would be thinking about his little brother and wondering, was he is he alive? Like, did he make it? Is he okay? And, you know, of course, at the time, we're so busy dealing with stuff that we don't realize the impact it's having on him. And so I have to say, 
it, my older son never, ever took for granted that his brother was here. I think a lot of siblings, they do because they're always around and everything's cool. But with my older son, he just never took that for granted. I think in many ways, his younger brother changed his life for the better. And they're really close. So it's been a difficult transition for him to go to college. And so you never saw periods of him, especially as he got into sort of adolescence and early teens of acting out or, you know, some kids I've noticed in these types of situations feeling a certain amount of resentment because it's as if the sibling with whatever is going on seems to suck the oxygen out of the room and they feel a certain amount of neglect on some level. And that's the surprising thing. I always expected that at some point there would be some resentment. It's really bizarre. Everything he does, he always asks, well, what about Tyler? So for instance, you know, we live in New York, New York City. And initially when he was applying to college, he wanted to apply to Columbia because my husband and I had to basically tell him, look, you need to start your own life. You need to have that space and you need to go away. And so he did. So going back to how all of these past 10 years and all that you've gone through uh, personally, and i assuming also sort of spiritually, but as a mother, how has it shaped you in terms of how you view sort of the uncertainties of future? You know, like we're all sort of facing that now, especially with COVID. How has that shaped your perspective? I mean, do you see life as more tenuous and fragile or are you able to seize moments of joy more readily? Yeah. First, I do think life is rather tenuous. And the trick really is to be in the moment. And to, for me, it's about stretching myself and, and doing all the things that maybe 10 years ago I would never have done. You know, I would have held myself back. Can you be more specific? Uh, or give some examples at least. Yeah, so I'm a writer because I don't feel comfortable being in front of other people and, you know, speaking and public speaking and And then I kind of realized that we only have this moment, like nothing is really guaranteed. And if you really want to get this message out or the things that you want to talk about out there, you have to do it. You have to stand up and not be afraid. And so I started speaking. I'm doing a TED Talk uh, in October. So I think a lot of it is approaching your fears and learning to not be afraid and to constantly stretch yourself. And then as far as what you wish for for your son, what would that be? I think it would be healing, whatever that means to him, whether it's physical healing in the future and different kinds of healing outside of the actual Western, you know, allopathic medicine. So I just hope that there are answers for him. As he gets older. Do you also see that healing for him on some level be emotional healing? So I can imagine how traumatic this has all been for him, no matter how well he's persevered and how much he's grown as a person in ways that perhaps other people might not have grown in, in the same situation. So do you also wish emotional help for him? Oh, yes. Emotional so being. I think for him... What concerns me most is other people. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that he's he's great and he's perfect. Even if 
his health is where it is, you know, for the rest of his life. I think sometimes people have ideas about those who are disabled, whether it be medically or physically or whatever. And they don't realize just how beautiful people are, just each of us. Because I think the sickly are not really considered equally in a, in a bizarre sense. We always assume that like, oh, if you're healthy, you're lucky. And if you're sick, you're unhealthy. But I think if you examine that, yes, you're unhealthy. But part of the reasons a lot of the times people aren't unhealthy is because they don't get the support they need. And if they did, would that really be the case? Sadly. So we're getting to the end and I'm going to change it up because I know that people have been listening to the podcast. So people have been preparing their last question. Okay. So if you could go back in time and sit down with one person, who would that person be? If I could go back and sit down with one person, that is a great question. And why would you pick that person? So I'm thinking about my grandmother. I never got to ask my own grandmother questions before she passed because I was pretty young and I just didn't know those questions. So they just didn't even exist. And if I could just speak with her now, I would ask so many more questions. Not just it would be like the most pressing question that you'd want answered. So my grandmother actually divorced my grandfather and left him. And she was a pretty amazing human being. She was not afraid of anything. And she demanded her dowry back and she went and started her own life. And she actually left him with the, with, with the six kids. And I think my questions would be like, how did you do that? What, like, no one got divorced back then. Never mind, you know, everyone has these ideas of, of Chinese women, you know, being footbound and what have you. And here she was like, jet setting off to another country, you know? And I guess part of it for me was really how, how did you cultivate that? Like, how did you feel so fearless in a time when most women did not? And, and how do people cultivate that, right? You know, even now, how do people do it? How do women feel not afraid? How do, how does anyone feel not afraid? And I, I just wish I understood how she did that. That's wonderful. So you said something that I'm going to close off with about that moment when you were six and you said to God that if he could make it better for you now, that you would care for the children that perhaps would not be wanted. And that firmly goes with my belief that God hands you what you can handle. So it's extraordinary that you are the person that has been able to handle this incredibly challenging gift, right? It's a gift, but it's challenging. So I am in awe of that. Thank you so much for doing this interview, Christine. I know that your story will simply um, get a lot of people thinking and probably reevaluating their own life and the things that they should be grateful for, regardless of what it is that they think they have or don't have. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. 
Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it, I'ma say this because. We gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, woulda. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix Tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.